0: The nice thing about our investment process is we invest in people based on how they perform, not how we think they're going to perform. And we react to businesses which are suddenly taking off because the market has changed by giving them more money and they do well. So that's, that's why we get these uh, good returns. Hello, I'm Kamal Hassan, founding partner of Loyal VC. And you're listening to Gut Talks, double G-U-T-T.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 1 of Gut Talks, double G-U-T-T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, Running two ventures, Gut, WG, U, T, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch Gut Talks as the pandemic hit, with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me. Maria at or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Kamal Hassan, founding partner at Loyal VC, a global VC fund that relies on process to deliver returns. Loyal VC has invested in 140 startups today in over 35 countries. Their strategy is to drive returns and remove bias, evolve the VC model, and leverage global networks and track social and environmental impact. And I just want to take the opportunity here to mention that at God there's a new LinkedIn group called God Talks. So feel free to join. It would be awesome to have you there because if you're always listening and so on, I want to create this community to, you know, have new guests, but also have some feedback on the questions and the conversations you would like me to have as well and connect people too. So feel free to join. The link is in the blurb. Kamal. Welcome to Gut Talks. How are you?
0: I'm doing well.
1: Can you tell me who is Kamal, the engineer, the management consultant, the entrepreneur who ended up being an angel investor?
0: My father is Indian of origin, and the first ten years of my career was very conventional, and I was very happy in it. But I was a engineering physics. I worked as an engineer with IMAX. Um, I did an MBA and I worked uh, in management consulting with Bain & Company. I realized very early on, I like small companies more than big companies. And in fact, working at Bain & Company really brought this home to me. What's good for the individual may not be good for the company. And it doesn't matter if they get their budget. They don't care if the company loses money because they get their budget. Whereas in a small company, it really matters. So I just really liked small companies and joined my first startup 20 years ago and have just sort of been in the entrepreneurial space ever since.
1: And what made you start Loyal VC with your founding partner, Michael Cozy?
0: Loyal VC is the fund that we wished we had available. So when you've been an entrepreneur for 20 years and you look at VC as a recipient of funding, you start to get um, well look, uh, Entrepreneurs talk to each other and say, uh, the joke is that VCs are idiots. They don't get it. Why doesn't the VC get it? So we spent a little time in thinking, you know, there's some really good reasons for this. So how would you do a fund differently? How would you invest differently if you wanted to be a VC that actually understood the businesses in detail, that was actually able to make informed decisions rather than, and I know this is called gut talks, but that could make informed decisions rather than gut decisions. The second thing is that uh, both Michael and I have been angel investors for about 15 years. And we realized as angel investors, first, if you, if you look at venture capital math, you understand very quickly that either you get lucky or you need large numbers. And you also realize that the problem with early stage investing is your money is locked away forever. It's locked away for 10, 12, 14 years. And we wanted to give people a chance to have access to their money because an investment where you can actually access the money, rebalance your portfolio is a lot more attractive than one where you can't touch the money you have.
1: That makes sense, actually. And I like the fact that you said, you know, informed decisions rather than gut decisions, but we're going to get to that later. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to jump into something, you know, when we met in Bulgaria, you know, at the global directors meeting of the Foundry Institute, you mentioned that you don't want to be pitched at, which are part actually at the back of my mind. So it's not a usual thing to hear from an investor. So can you expand on this?
0: Sure. In fact, um, one of the backgrounds I will give for we think pitches don't work. And I have one data point, which I think is a magnificently informative data point, which is that 97% of all venture capital investing goes to companies who have a man as the CEO, and only 3% who have a woman as a CEO. And if you look at that, either you say that only 3% of entrepreneurial talent is in women, or you say there's a fundamental flaw in the venture capital process that is stopping money from going to good entrepreneurs, in this case, good entrepreneurs who happen to be women. And if you look at that in more detail, we actually did gathered a bunch of research on this, did a paper in a Harvard Business Review. But One difference between men and women appears to be that women are evaluated as weaker in pitches, which probably comes from the fact that men, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Maria, with the men around you, but men tend to have a very inflated sense of their own self-worth and they always know (laughs) that they're right. And women who who may be more realistic in their self-assessments tend to be Uh, the scene is too modest rather than actually telling it like it is.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that was your data point kind of. uh. So that
0: was, that was sort of a a data point, but all of this comes to say, look, if there's a process called the pitch, which, and if you look more at the data pitches who tends to succeed in pitches is good looking men. So if you know, the pitch is a process, which causes selection of good looking men and you're trying to invest to make money rather than invest to find good-looking men, then use a different process than the process which is just sort of a gender-look sculpture.
1: Okay, I'm going to ask you a question on that. So if good-looking men get invested in, are the investors women?
0: Uh, no, it's, it's actually the same, whether it's men or women. Okay. Look, we all like good-looking people better than yes. we like not good-looking people. That's why advertisements tend to be with good-looking actors. They're not an ad where somebody who's yeah. not good-looking is trying to sell you something. And yeah, that's actually it's a very interesting data point is from the studies we've seen, and I hear different stories on this, but a number of the studies I've seen say that women also are much more likely to fund, so either men or women will fund good-looking men and not good-looking women. In fact, statistically, when we looked at the difference, and I'm just trying to remember that the specific study, but basically good-looking men outperformed bad-looking men. Bad-looking men outperformed bad-looking women and bad looking women outperformed good looking women. So there was actually a slight statistical bias against good looking women when it came to funding decisions. And yeah, I <laughs> I don't know why that is. It was on the margins of the statistics. So it could have just been a one study effect. But it was interesting that being good looking was almost seen as a slight negative for funding as a woman. Okay.
1: That's interesting, actually, it's the first time I hear it. But, you know, I'm going to explore that more because you're kind of, you know, the voice of uh, VCs, the voice, you know, this TV show for singers. So you just don't want to see who's behind it. It's how good they are. I don't know. But
0: yes, but that is precisely it. I mean, there was a famous study from uh, orchestras where they started doing this, I forget it was 20 years ago or something. And they found that when you could see whoever was auditioning the orchestra, they tended to pick more men than women. And as soon as they did it blind, more women were picked. And among other things they had to do is they actually had to get the women to take their shoes off get everyone to take their shoes off. Because if you heard a high heel, walking along the okay. stage or behind the screen, then again, you saw more of an effect. So it's just, it's really interesting studies. I mean, look, we are not in any way gender warriors of any sort. We just want to make money. And when you make money, you want to make rational decisions. And one of the things you struggle against as an investor is human beings have all sorts of built-in decision biases that we struggle against. And if you want to make really good, rational decisions, it's actually really hard. And you really need to start to be aware of biases and things you do and set up a process and structure that eliminates bias from your investing, because that's how you make money.
1: Actually, this helped build your philosophy right around loyal VC. actually. The name by itself is Loyal.VC. Yes. So I also want to ask you how do you, because this is linked actually to how you you started building loyal VC how do you leverage your global network like the founders institute and INSEAD alumni to invest in like how do you do it given that your fund is collaborative with a staged investment process so it's over time and a network of over 300 global advisors like how does it work and How did you design your investment model? Because now I kind of understand the why, but how does it work?
0: So let's start with the net for the initial side. One of the problems you have as an investor is making sure that the entrepreneur will not be someone who's lying or cheating you. And this is why investors do due diligence. Due diligence is a time consuming process and the advantage of investing within a network that uh, sort of a network you are very embedded in is the same as the advantage of friends and family investing, which they are less likely to cheat you. When it comes to Founder Institute and INSEAD, both Michael and I are very deeply embedded in both those networks. So somebody knows if they cheat us, they are more like they have a cost above and beyond just taking our money. That it impacts their ability to access the support of a very powerful network in both cases. So, one of the secrets, I mean, our process. We do a very small first investment. It's a ten thousand dollar first investment, and then we do larger follow-ons based on data. A ten thousand dollar first investment. We're returning about a ten percent. On average, on those first small initial investments, we can do that because we don't have we have people whose business fails because their business honestly fails. But we don't have people uh, taking our money and running off with it, which would result in us losing money rather than making money on those small initial investments. So the network is valuable that way. The other thing we do, which is highly unusual is. You have to ask yourself a question. If you're not evaluating people on a pitch, what do you do? And the way we do it is we say, let us get the experience and feedback of people who know that person in detail and can tell us about how the business has developed over many months. How can we judge people based on what they did, not what they promise? So when you're working in a network like the Founder Institute, you've got local directors who have followed the progress of a company over many months. Within NCAD, you often will find other alumni who are aware of and have followed the process over many months. So that's how we use a network.
1: Yeah, okay. That's a smart way of doing it as well, because it's taking less risks, actually, and trusting people, because that's one of the main elements as well in human cycle. You're really trusting The network and the people in this network, because no one's going to recommend someone they don't actually believe in.
0: Yes. And well, and they won't recommend it when you're in an ongoing recurring relationship. And that's really the difference. I mean, we don't talk about it this way, but what we do is really relationship investing. So the network matters is powerful because we build up relationships within it. And those relationships matter to everyone involved because they are repeat relationships. A director who sends us one company from their one founder from their city is going to want to deepen that relationship and be able to send us more, whereas in a one-off transaction, then in one-off transactions, people have no motivation. They are not responsible for the consequences. They can refer anyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the way the networks work as well is everyone will benefit from it anyway. Oh, yeah. So
0: And in fact, one of the things we do is we give a percentage of our carry goes back both into the Founder Institute and the INSEAD network. So that's one of the things we have agreements with both organizations to reward them and rewarding the headquarter organizations not so much um, for what they necessarily did, but for building and managing strong networks, which we can then take advantage of.
1: I can feel the way you have your naming and the brand per se is all linked, actually. So you've yes. done a, a good job on, on that end because one thing leads to another and you understand where the name comes from and the trust and you know the whole process of it. You know, it's
0: interesting. The the loyal name, you're absolutely right. Once you've called yourself loyal, you have to act loyal. So there's a whole series of things which come out. The actual origin of the name loyal VC was we start investing in companies at the earliest stages. And very few people know this or think about this, but the biggest risk you have as an early stage angel investor or a very early stage VC is not that companies will fail. You know that they're going to fail. Your biggest problem is the companies that succeed where the entrepreneur is not loyal. And specifically, later stage investors come along and they invest with preferred shares with terms which put them above and beyond everyone else. And those preferences can stack one on top of the other so that the early stage investor who took all the risk at the beginning actually makes much less of a return on their six full deals than they could. And your only protection against that is the founder looking out for you. And I've been on both sides of the table. I've been running entrepreneurial companies where I had new investors coming to me saying, let's clean up your cap table. Let's get rid of these early investors. Let's pay them their money back plus interest. And I said, no, but I mean, that was sort of because I'd experienced being an angel investor. Also, I felt very strongly about this as a result, but but you really started to see that your protection as an investor um, as an early stage investor, your protection really comes from the people running that business, whether that CEO, those founders will look after their investors and you really need to sort of build up that loyalty in that relationship. And then, of course, we need to make sure we deliver value to the entrepreneurs so they want to be loyal to us. So that was the origin of the name.
1: Okay. Thank you for expanding on that one. This makes me want to ask you this question, because you've been on both sides of the table, and this is how you created your brand at the end of the day. And I'm saying brand specifically because you are building a brand loyal VC. So like, what does the traditional VC model and traditional angel model do wrong or can do better in your opinion?
0: Actually, one of the things both traditional models do well is they don't understand diversification in math. Every angel in VC feels that they can look at a company and through whatever combination of analysis and gut feeling, they can determine who is going to succeed in the future and who isn't. Through having run Founder Institute programs where I saw tens of entrepreneurs, I know that sometimes the ones I succeeded were exactly the ones I thought would. And sometimes they're the ones I was sure were going to fail who actually did succeed. So I've realized the humility of, you know, I can't pick them. And if you step back, and in fact the math is that two out of three venture capital deals fail one out of 25, so 4% of venture capital deals, will give you 10 times your money back or more. Now, every VC and angel sits there and says, I am special, I am different, I can recognize that one in 25, and I'm only going to invest in them. (laughs) And they build a whole portfolio of companies they think are home runs, and then actually the end result is two out of three fail, and one out of 25 is a home run. So we looked at this and said, well, look, it's a statistics game. If you accept that, you are no that sort of everyone on average is about equally able to recognize winners, then okay. So if you have 25 deals, you may or may not have one home run. If you have 50 Deals, you probably have a home run and if you start going up into 100 and 150 and then there's probabilities I mean your probability is actually 1.5 percent of getting a, a company which is 20 times or better so then you say okay if there's a 1.5 percent 20 times or better then I want to have 150 companies in my portfolio to be sure you have at least a, a 20 times in there and so yeah lo and behold loyal VC has 150 companies in our portfolio today It's just about 150 right now. I think it's 148. And we're very aware of that math, which is we can't pick winners. We don't have a perfect crystal ball, which tells us the future. And I'll give you one specific example. We invested in a company in November of 2019. The founder came to us and he said, the medical establishment does not know how to treat viral diseases. And normally... Two things are right. Either the founder is right or the medical establishment is right. Don't bet against the medical establishment. However, I mean, we have a network of over 300 advisors. One of them's sort of top doctor uh, down in the US. And we got this doctor to do a diligence call with them before we invested. And the doctor got, got back off the call and he said, look, the guy is completely crazy, this is he's absolutely right, this is not at all how one should treat viral diseases, but I can't prove he's wrong. What he says is possible, I don't think he's right, but it's possible. So we funded this company. In November, he was saying, look, viral diseases don't kill you. It's how the body's immune system reacts. There's these things called cytokine storms. And those of us who have lived through COVID-19 in the past little while know all about this now. But the initially, to make that investment in November of 2019 was very brave because here's someone who tells me viral diseases are treated differently. And by the way, nobody cares about viral diseases. He'd spend all this time treating HIV, but come on, it's not a big market, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons to say no to it. But if you sort of take some chances like that, you position yourself for potential mega upsides. One thing I love looking at is Bessemer Ventures has their anti-portfolio, and it's the companies they said no to and why. And that list of companies they very rationally said no to includes Apple, eBay, Google, Facebook, Tesla. Wow! Um, When you look at the reasons, like Facebook, they said no. They said, hey, kid, have you never heard of Friendster? It's over. Give up. So this is all for me, the humility of as a venture investor, you cannot predict the future. It's a numbers game.
1: I mean, I would be curious to know about this startup you invested in in 2019. (laughs) How are they doing? It's It's doing
0: extremely well right now. Um, The very short answer is they're doing extremely well. They do testing of blood so that you can actually tell how people's immune system is reacting. And you can treat each person individually based on what their body is doing, rather than trying to treat them with a generic Sort of, here's the formula you follow. If you understood how their immune system is reacting and could predict things like a cytokine storm before it occurs, you can get much better at it. And of course, look, in the past years, our med- in the past year, our medical treatment has gotten better and better and better for COVID-19. They're just a test, which hopefully will be on the market within sort of four-ish to six-ish months, which will be- make it even better and easier to treat this disease.
1: Okay, I think we need to connect offline on that one because actually for whoever's listening to this, um, episode um, three that I released with ImmuVid and Pieter Law, it's just because we're talking about healthcare would be and testing here. It would be an interesting episode to listen to. Um, it, it's just about how they're building an ecosystem to reopen the economy. So this startup we invested in, can be something part of this ecosystem. Maybe we need to explore further, but it's good stuff. No, that's uh, interesting. It's about having foresight without even knowing about it. And less than a year later, what happened like COVID? So did it accelerate your investments? Did it take them into another direction? Did it make you focus more on impact, sustainability, responsible ventures? Did it allow you to raise more money? I don't know.
0: So overall, COVID has been excellent for our portfolio, I would say. We've had very good financial results over the past. Well, we've had very good financial results since we launched. So our fund is very clearly a top quartile venture fund. And we actually do staged investing. So our stage one investments are very diversified based on the references from the network, not knowing and not having a view of how things are going to turn out. We then do follow on stage two investments, which are $200,000 each in size. And we have a return on those $200,000 investments, which is well above 40% so far. So we're financially, we're doing magnificently. What we found with COVID, just on the return side, is a third of our portfolio, COVID was amazing, because it's accelerated the adoption of technology by about five years. A lot of tech markets, they sort of, you can just see this step change where they've gone ahead. We have a company out of Singapore, which does software for restaurants, which allows you to see the menu, order and pay from your own mobile phone. And you just sort of scan something on the table, you use your mobile phone to do everything. You walk out when you're done. And the only thing the waiter needs to do is bring you the food. Before covid The restaurants were saying, well, I don't want to use this. My waiters are complaining. I have to lay off waiters. Nobody wants to do this. After COVID, it's like, oh, people don't need to touch a menu because restaurants, by law, had to throw out menus after each guest, which, by the way, is horrible for the environment too. But the concept of the restaurant could just have their menu show up on people's handsets was considered a wonderful thing. So, And now their vision of people eat relax walk out the door when you're done without having to wait for the bill is just this vision is being adopted by restaurants now where it was unthinkable for it to be adopted before COVID. people just didn't want to change how they operated so that's a third of our companies a third of our companies COVID made no difference whatsoever they just they continue running it's sort of whatever they were doing their business continues as before and a third of our businesses I mean, one of those businesses, for instance, is a company which does software for baby monitors to allow the baby monitor to recognize whether the baby needs their diaper changed or they need to be fed. And this is software they've licensed off to a big manufacturer. And guess what? People are still having babies and they're still buying baby monitors. (laughs) And that business is unchanged. And then we have about a third of our companies where COVID was a big problem. We have a company that does software for hotel chains. The hotel chains love the software. They want to keep the software, but they were sitting there saying, we can't pay for the software right now because of we have no revenues coming in. So they have really struggled during this COVID period. So the nice thing about our investment process is we invest in people based on how they perform, not how we think they're going to perform. And we react to businesses which are suddenly taking off because the market has changed by giving them more money and they do well. So that's, that's why we get these uh, good returns.
1: Okay, cool. Because giving those examples actually show how diversified your portfolio is, because this is what you kind of preach as well and say, this is what you need to do. Because I, I hear many times as well, investors or new funds and some no, we really want to focus just on this or just on that. Sometimes it's a good thing, but it's not always a good thing, especially when you're investing at an early stage. You need to diversify because you need to spread the risk across. So I want to ask you if you're also driven by, because this is something you have on your website as well, and it's kind of a trend too today, especially after COVID, do you invest in impact and sustainability and social entrepreneurship and social ventures? We
0: surveyed our entrepreneurs, and we found out that over 80% of them address one or more of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We are not explicitly marketed as an impact fund. However, because we do our sourcing largely through Founder Institute and INSEAD, both of those are organizations, which I'm trying to remember the phrase that Founder Institute uses right now, but it's basically Purpose-driven entrepreneurship, I yeah. think, is the phrase. Yeah. And uh, NCAD is business is a force for good. So both of them are encouraging people to think about more than just making money. What we have seen, and I don't have good data on this, but I've seen individual examples of entrepreneurs who gave up early on businesses because they were not mission-driven and other mission-driven entrepreneurs who have kept going further. And honestly, a business doesn't fail until the founder gives up. And sometimes the business will fail anyway in the end. But one good example, actually, it was really a disappointment. We funded a company out of the U.S. which was providing treatment for menopause for women. Menopause is a taboo subject. People don't really like to talk about it. And they were offering a really good service, which was very valued by women but they were having a real problem getting the marketing right because no woman wanted to admit or talk about menopause being a problem so even though they provided all these treatments and ways to deal with it knowledge and free consultations with doctors and everything else they couldn't figure out the marketing in a two or three month period and because they were burning through money quickly the founder gave up. Now the founder was a man. He's someone who said, okay, this was a problem my mother had. I'm very motivated to deal with it. But when it got hard, his level of dedication for whatever reason wasn't there because I looked at this and said, yeah, so you've only been marketing it three months and you haven't figured out how to bring the women in, but come on, this is just a problem to be solved. The women who do finally make it through your funnel really appreciate it. It costs you a thousand dollars to get every woman in the funnel, but there's gotta be a way to figure out how to market this. And he was just like, no, I don't see it. I can't see it work and I'm just going to quit up and quit and go. Uh, So, so, so yeah, I think when you're really mission driven, it matters. And I think that mission has to be personal for the founder to push them through, because even if it's a good mission, like this menopause company, if it really isn't personally powerful, it's not going to keep you going through the tough times. And entrepreneurship is hard. Anyone who tells you otherwise is fooling you.
1: Entrepreneurship is hard and it's not for everyone. Yes. Actually, so many people try and then they realize they figure out it's not for them, uh, which is a good thing. So at least you try, you learn a lot anyway. But on that specific matter of not trying how to market it, it's because you can't build the product and then decide I'm going to go and market it. Well, you can in some instances, but most of the time you need to do your research and see how you're going to communicate with those people. And why would they buy it in the first instance? So yeah, quitting after three months, I mean, especially if you have a good product is a big shame because, you know, what is the cost of not using it for a woman? Maybe that's another way of reversing it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, so
0: it's, it's just there are some things which are hard. I mean, we have another business out of Singapore, which is targeted at women's sexual health. And sorry, don't assume that everything we do is funded in women. These just happen to be the two examples, which I got I know, right It's
1: diverse. Here. Don't worry. <laughs>
0: But again, and this is in sort of Chinese culture, apparently, women don't really want to talk about sexuality and getting sexual pleasure. So again, it's something which look, most people, given the choice between having pleasurable sex and not will pick pleasurable sex. But if you're in a culture where you're not supposed to talk about it, where you can't really market it, where by the way, guess what, if you want to talk about sensuality and eroticism and so on you can't advertise it on facebook and twitter because they'll shut you off so it's it's a real challenge when you say here's something that the end consumer she wants it but how does she become aware of it and where do you put it in front of her so that she can learn about you so there are certainly products out there where that channel is a hard thing to figure out
1: yeah cool I do like these examples you're giving. So basically, in in a nutshell, you invest in taboo. (laughs) You invest in in whatever no one else wants to invest in, kind of. Because you you do invest in random things. and, And that's really cool because it's, as you said, you cannot predict the future, but you see the potential. If they're doing well, why not?
0: That is actually one of the advantages of being a generalist fund is that because venture capital funds specialize by theme which they do because they are persuading their investors that they can predict the future and how can you predict the future if you're a generalist you have to be a specialist but that means that there are blockchain funds there are femtech funds there are all sorts of different fintech funds you've got sort of fund after fund after fund but there's a lots of businesses that fall in the cracks which don't actually fit one of those themes. And being a fund which is able to invest in the cracks is very powerful.
1: I mean, you also have this network around, yes. so it helps as well. And not everyone is able to do that and, and have this trust too. Actually, based on what you were mentioning before as well, we do live in this startup bubble and buzzwords bubble, and startups, yes. you know, popping up left, right, and center which can be a good thing and a bad thing. So what's your view on entrepreneurship and startups and what grabs your attention?
0: We touched on it briefly earlier, which is, in fact, you were the ones who said it, which are many people become entrepreneurs because it's sexy or because Mm. they think it's a good way of making money. And they look at the Facebook story and they say, I could be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And they never think about the 10,000 other failed stories which you don't hear about because they failed and went away quietly so there is I think right now there's a little bit too much of glamour around entrepreneurship and people coming into it for the wrong reasons and that comes back to purpose-driven entrepreneurship if you are doing something because you really think This is going to make a massive difference in the world. And this business is the only way you can see to do it. You can't see another business to join who's doing it that same way. Then that is a very rational reason to become an entrepreneur. Because even if you fail, you will have gotten a lot of psychic benefit out of having tried and almost made this your life's mission. So, yeah, I think there is. And if you want to do entrepreneurship to make money you will on average make more money in a salary than you will as an entrepreneur. Statistically, if you get lucky, you can get lucky. That one out of 25 chances that you get lucky. But if you think about it on a personal basis, 24 out of 25 companies aren't going to sort of put you further ahead. So you almost have to be an entrepreneur 25 times to be statistically sure you're going to actually come out ahead.
1: Okay, that's a nice way of putting it. So. But it's true, yeah, doing it for the right reasons. This is one of the main things. I think you shared some of, you know, briefly touch on some of your experiences, but I have a couple of more questions. Can you go back in time and share an experience where you learned from a lot? Could have been a mistake or something where it made you change your whole perspective in the way you invest.
0: I mentioned the whole reason we're called Loyal VC is about developing this loyalty with the entrepreneurs. My very first angel investment I ever made was in a company in Canada that did knitting pattern software. So you could adjust the size of the sweater pattern to wherever. And I didn't know this. And I discovered at the time knitting is actually really big business. And back then, so it was whatever, uh, 15 years ago or so, you couldn't just do this on your handset. But that was a business that I invested in. I felt the valuation at the time was a little bit high. So I said, I'll do that valuation if I have this paper, this legal paperwork that gives me all sorts of protection so that I have control. I I mean, I have all sorts of all control over all sorts of decisions. I have this sort of really safely protected legal paperwork. So made the investment, company did well. And this was where I learned the lesson about it's the successes which hurt you, it's not the failures. Because the company did well, another venture capitalist came along. They, well, a venture capitalist, I was an angel and they said, we'll invest in the company, but you have to pay back all the people, their initial money with interest, and then we'll invest a million dollars in you. And I'm sitting there going, well, hold on at this point, I made a number of other investments, which had failed. And I was like, okay, well, those investments failed. This is my success. Let me do the math. And they were offering me over oh, generous a 10% interest rate on your money. And it's like, okay, well, if, I, if two other companies fail, and the one who succeeds gives me back a 10% interest rate. This is a very dumb business to be in. Why would anyone be an angel investor? But that was the moment when I really learned the importance of loyalty because the founder of the company came to me and he said, look, Kamal, can you put a million dollars in? To which my answer was no. And he said, well, great. Either I'm taking this person's money or I'm going to shut down the company and you will have nothing. Which would you prefer? And the entrepreneur was probably pushed into that by the investor, I'd like to think. But the bottom line is that was the moment when I realized the importance of loyalty because that founder had the choice to push me around and push me out with my money plus interest or... He had the choice to sort of stand up for me with the other investor. And he chose to sort of push me out. And investors always say, oh, this is the way things work in the world. Oh, you're so young. You're so naive. You don't understand this. Cleaning up your cap table is totally normal. And it's like, no, it isn't. But that was a really big lesson for me. And that's why sort of part of the principle of loyal is built. And loyal is built on delivering value to the entrepreneur also. I did not deliver value to him as an angel. Yes, he got my money. Yeah, I wish he delivered loyalty for that alone. But keeping a strong relationship, helping out in the business, really making sure the loyalty that he had emotional reasons to give me loyalty, not just moral ones, uh, would have been a smart thing to do too.
1: Cool. Thank you for that. It's a nice way of wrapping up with this part, actually, where we're touching on. Actually, you, you mentioned gut feelings at the very beginning, and you said making informed decisions versus gut decisions. So do you rely on your gut feeling in a way or another when it comes to making the final decision?
0: No and yes. No. So... We are always making investment decisions based on multiple factors altogether. And the main factors will be ones that you can sort of rationally explain and look at. And it's arguments between us which say, I think this company's sales will grow. Don't get very far. It's what have this company's sales done? Having said that... There will be factors we will look at above and beyond. So, for instance, we will say to ourselves, I believe that the founder and the, the, the CEO and the CTO are fighting over who's going to stay in, or who's running the company, and this, this founding team is likely to break up. Now, that is much more of a gut decision. rather a gut feeling rather than, and you can point to little things, you know, I think it was because he reacted this way when she said that, therefore that might be, but that is much more gut. So that will be a factor which we will still discuss and give equal valid weight to when discussing a company, which is here is another factor to be aware of. It's a gut factor, but the decision itself is not a gut-based decision. It's a preponderance of the evidence where gut factors are considered as valid factors to evaluate as part of the preponderance of the
1: evidence okay thank you thank you for that thank you for you know sharing all those stories and your experiences and what loyal see is about and how it got started so it was a great pleasure seeing you again behind the screen this time and yeah i hope to see you soon thank you so much thank you maria So we spoke about making informed decisions versus making gut-driven decisions on why pitches don't work, about men and women getting invested in and the selection process to get funded based on some data. We spoke about trust and due diligence and leveraging the network. We also spoke about how you guys invest in how businesses do versus how you think they will perform. We also tapped into the word or the brand loyal, that you've got to be loyal and deliver on that as well. We spoke about diversification and math and what's been going on with COVID. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.